Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Cult Leader early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by June's Journey. Picture it, the glamour of the roaring 20s wrapped in a mystery that only you can solve. Dive into June Parker's captivating quest to uncover scandalous family secrets. With your keen eye for detail, find hidden clues and solve mind-boggling puzzles. It's all about observation, intrigue, and drama. But beware, each clue leads deeper into a thrilling storyline filled with danger and romance. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Your adventure awaits. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. The show you're about to listen to may contain themes of violence, occult activities, strong language, and other sensitive material. With an emphasis on cults, murder, and other adult matters, listener discretion is advised. On Cult Leader, I strive for telling stories in a truthful manner, though press, media, and other resources cannot always be verified. Sources can be found in the show notes. Welcome back to Cold Leader. I'm your Cold Leader, Spencer Henry, and this week's episode has been quite the journey. In a recent episode, The Silent Twins, I told the story of twin sisters Jennifer and June Gibbons. If you've yet to listen to the episode without giving too much away, the sisters ended up spending 12 years at an institution called the Broadmoor Hospital in Crowthorne, Berkshire, England, as part of a sentence for a string of crimes that they'd committed back in 1981. Learning about their experience at Broadmoor really piqued my interest in the hospital. This past week, I was looking into a case that took place in Neasden, a suburb of North London, and it turns out the person I was looking into also spent time at Broadmoor. So instead of an entire episode about that particular case, it opened up this web of stories. I've decided to shift the focus of today's episode onto Broadmoor as a whole. It's really interesting. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of Broadmoor and some of its most notable and infamous patients throughout the years. Broadmoor opened its doors in 1863, and it was named after the Broadmoor Act, which was another name given to the Criminal Lunatics Act of 1860. This act was put forth by the Parliament of Great Britain after the trial of a man named James Hadfield. The quick version goes that this guy James had previously worked as a bodyguard for the Duke of York during his time working 
working in that position, he sustained several injuries, several blows to the head, which led some to believe eventually drove him mad. Seemingly out of nowhere, James started having these frequent outbursts of what they called insanity, where he would threaten to kill his children, others, himself, because God told him to. Eventually, he came under the belief that, actually, no, He couldn't die by suicide or die by his own hand, but he was in a delusional state that put him under the impression that he must die in order to save the world. So he's like, how am I going to come to my death if I don't do it myself? Comes up with this plan on May 15th, 1800, he attempts to assassinate King George III. He figured this would surely get him executed, but he missed the shot by 12 inches and was apprehended by police and placed under arrest instead. At his trial, his defense told the court that he was under the influence of insanity at the time. During the trial, a man named Dr. Creighton came in as a medical witness, and several who had witnessed James's past outburst, as well as the medical witness, came and, and, and talked about who James is, what he's like. Basically, the Lord Chief Justice was not convinced at the trial. So he stops the trial and he tells the jury to find James Hadfield not guilty because he was under the influence of insanity at the time that the act was committed. Any legal experts out there, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe James was one of the first, at least the first in the UK, to be found not guilty by reason of insanity. Anyway, there wasn't really a place at the time for people that were deemed criminally insane. That wasn't an execution block in a public square or a prison. So James was instead committed to the Bethlehem Hospital, which is where he remained until he passed away in 1841. His case led to the creation of the Criminal Lunatics Act in 1860, which provided that if any person charged with treason, murder, or felony was found to have been insane at the time of the commission of such offense, and hence acquitted, the court shall order such persons to be kept in strict custody in such place and in such manner as the court shall deem fit until his majesty's pleasure shall be known. This in turn led to the Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum opening its doors in 1863. Now obviously we would not call it that today but we'll get into the transitions and the later acts and all of that. According to researcher Jade Shepard for Cambridge University Broadmoor opened its doors to 98 female patients in 1863 and 220 male patients. There was one female block with space for 100 patients, and there were six male blocks with space for 400 patients. There were two classes of patients here. The Queen's Pleasure patients, they're called, who had been found insane before or during their trial, and insane convicts who had become insane while undergoing a term of penal servitude and were then transferred to Broadmoor from a prison until their sentences expired and they were discharged to another asylum or released or they were declared sane and sent back to prison until their sentences expired. And we'll hear several different instances throughout today's episode. But Broadmoor itself was run like any ordinary asylum at the time, and its patients were treated like ordinary patients. It didn't matter that they had committed crimes. Everyone was kind of seen equal there. It's important to note that these quote-unquote asylums in the Victorian era were vastly different than a psychiatric hospital would be today. They did not have the knowledge or therapeutic resources 
resources that are implemented in today's world. And that's why we hear so many horror stories about mental institutions from back in the day. Because, well, they weren't rehabilitating people. They were locking them away from the rest of society. And, you know, my beliefs are always wavering on what happens when we die. Are there ghosts? Can places be haunted? And I feel like so often haunted asylums are brought up when we're talking about ghosts and whatnot. And it's like, yeah, if there was a place that was going to be haunted, it would absolutely be one of these old hospitals because of how they treated their patients. I mean, and they did this with tons of people at the time. If your family member had certain disabilities, they would send you away. If your daughter becomes pregnant, they send you away. I mean, that was kind of the solution at the time. According to the UK Museum of Science, the mental asylum was the historical equivalent to the modern psychiatric hospital. The word asylum comes from the earliest religious institutions which provided asylum in the sense of refuge to the mentally ill. One of the oldest such institutions was Bethlehem, which began in 1247 as part of the Priory of the New Order of Our Lady of Bethlehem in the City of London. Before asylums, people with mental illness or learning disabilities were cared for almost entirely by their families, and those who could not be kept at home often ended up living out on the streets, hungry, without a roof over their head. By the 1700s, there were a few private institutions where wealthy families could send their quote-unquote mad relatives to be cared for with discretion, aka we're gonna leave them at the funny farm and nobody's gonna question a darn thing. Oh, they're traveling on an excursion through Europe. It's very exciting when really they're just locked in this little room. They also had a little blurb on the website about the use of physical restraints in asylums, which I feel like kind of enters into obituary territory. On my other show, I know we've talked about a lot of different dated techniques people would use, but the history of physical restraints is really interesting. It says the commonplace use of physical restraints on patients had its roots in the custodial nature of early asylums. The function of mental institutions was simply to keep inmates in custody. The keepers were little more than guards, and it was not uncommon for patients to be kept in chains or other restraints for most of the time. The extent to which the restraints were used varied from one asylum to another, but they were accepted as a necessary part of mental health care, which paused really quick. I feel like a lot of this was at the discretion of whoever was running one of these asylums or hospitals at the time. Because I know based off of research for prior episodes, like, it really varied how each and every one of these places were run. Although I think there was and is corruption at all of these types of facilities. There were several justifications for the use of such restraints. They could control antisocial behavior, such as tearing clothes and exhibiting lewd or sexual behavior. Restraints stopped patients harming themselves or attempting to commit suicide side, patients were frequently strapped into their beds at night to stop them from hurting themselves, and some patients were so worried that they would hurt themselves that they asked to be restrained. Critics said the use of restraints demoralized and brutalized attendants as well as patients, and the violence used by attendants to put uncooperative patients into restraints only increased the level of violence in asylums. In 1829, William Scrivenger, a patient at Lincoln Asylum, was found dead from strangulation after being strapped to his bed in a straitjacket and left overnight without supervision. The incident persuaded the authorities at Lincoln to abolish all physical restraints and implement a non-restraint system. Their system was very influential in the 1800s asylum reform and indicative of a wider change in attitude towards mental illness and the care of mentally ill people. It's extremely barbaric how these hospitals used to function. 
Now, of course, there's still scandals occurring in today's psychiatric hospitals, but there are HR departments, there's protocols, there's jobs dedicated to ensuring hospitals are not mishandling or mistreating patients. Does it still happen? Absolutely. But it's not as prevalent as it once was. As time went on, facilities like Broadmoor evolved with the times and began hiring faculties with expertise in mental health. Now that we've got some background, I want to talk about some of the most infamous patients who have been committed to Broadmoor throughout its history, from terrorist to arsonist, assassins, and serial killers. Cult Leader is sponsored by BetterHelp. Cult Babes, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Are you hitting the gym, hitting the sheets for a little nap, looking at your neighbor's house on Zillow? Really though, if time was unlimited, how would you use it? How would you decide what's important enough to make time for? Unfortunately, time is not unlimited, but fortunately, therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. That's one of my biggest takeaways from therapy, figuring out where to devote time to make the rest of my life easier. I could go on forever about how much less stressful life is once I learn to prioritize my time, but why don't you see for yourself? Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash leader today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash leader. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk, nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. Welcome to your next true crime obsession. Don't miss new BritBox original drama, The Sixth Commandment, which The Guardian calls as immaculate a piece of TV as you will ever see. You will hear evidence of extreme gaslighting. Help me, please. I am going to be waiting on you, hand and foot. Stream this plus the best selection of British true crime series anywhere, only on BritBox. Once you start investigating, you won't be able to turn away. Start streaming today with a free trial at BritBox.com. The first patient was a female, actually. This is just, I'm not really going to go into her story, but she was admitted for infanticide on May 27th of 1863. But the first person that I want to talk about is actually this guy named Richard Dad. He was one of the first patients at Broadmoor. He was one that was transferred from another place, but we'll get into it. Richard was a famed painter of the Victorian era, and his works were incredibly detailed and included a lot of elements of fantasy. They're incredible. Funny enough, his fantastic fantastical ways of thinking are what many believe eventually drove him to the brink of insanity. His artistic talent was noted from a very young age. He had a vast imagination, and his paintings reflected his inner creativity. At 20 years old, he was admitted to the Royal Academy of the Arts, where he was praised for his work, his oil paintings. It seemed like he was sure to go on to conquer the art world, but everything changed when Richard was 25. You see, he was asked by this man, Sir Thomas Phillips, who was a Welsh lawyer and politician, to come along with him on a tour of Europe 
Europe and the Middle East. Sir Thomas basically wanted Richard to document the journey with paintings, and Richard was really excited about the opportunity to travel the world, so off they went. The men traveled throughout Europe, Greece, Turkey, Syria, and they ended up in Egypt, which is where things took a turn. At some point, Richard started exhibiting some strange behavior, seemingly overnight. He was talking nonsense, he was claiming he was under the influence of the Egyptian god Osiris, who's the god of fertility, agriculture, and the afterlife, as well as resurrection in ancient Egyptian religion. He was also talking about this fear he had that the Pope was after him. Overall, I would say he was just experiencing a lot of paranoia. But when he returned home in the spring of 1843, the paranoia followed. That August, Richard had become overwhelmed with this idea that his father, Robert, was secretly the devil in disguise. So one evening, Richard stops the evil for good, or so he thinks, by stabbing his father to death. Afterwards, he disappeared from the bloody crime scene, only to resurface several weeks later in Fontainebleau, France. I have an article from the Essex Mercury in 1843 that says, Richard Dad, the supposed parricide. A circumstantial report has been sent to us the effect that Richard Dad, the supposed parricide, has been apprehended in Fontainebleau at France on a charge of attempting the life of a fellow traveler with a razor. He was soon identified by authorities and should be back in London in the course of a few days. We, however, doubt the truth of his apprehension. It appears certain that after the death of his father, he proceeded to Rochester, where he took a post-chaise and posted to Dover, at which place he arrived at a quarter after four o'clock in the morning, the day of the murder. His dress was torn and disordered, and he stated to persons who asked about his appearance that he had been met with an accident, having fallen from a coach. So essentially what happened is he had escaped and he went to France, where he threatened to kill somebody with a razor blade, the police get involved, and they find out that Richard's father had been murdered back in England. So after his capture, he was extradited back to London, where he was sent to London's Bethlehem Hospital. After 20 years at Bethlehem, he was sent to the newly opened Broadmoor, where he continued painting until his death. And it's really fascinating. I guess during therapy sessions, he was very incoherent, but his art was as good as ever. It was later learned that two of his cousins suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, so it's likely that Richard may have also suffered from the illness. He passed away on January 7th of 1886 when he died from an extensive disease of the lungs. And had he survived another two years there at Broadmoor, he would have been at Broadmoor during the same time as one of the men suspected of being Jack the Ripper. His name was Thomas Cutbush. Thomas was born in 1886 in Kennington, London, meaning he would have been around 22 years old when Jack the Ripper was, well, ripping. His father passed away when he was pretty young, and as a result, he was primarily raised by his mom and aunt, both of whom were pretty rigid from what I gather. Religious fanatics. Anyway, he was pretty much a nightmare to anybody who employed him throughout his life. You guys, listen to this. At his first job, he was fired for disorderly conduct after having frequent outbursts, but at his second job, he fucking pushed his boss, his elderly boss, down the stairs. Some serious lifetime movie shit. After losing that second job, obviously, he just lost it, becoming super eccentric, really aggressive. It was very apparent to 
anyone and everyone around him. And it's long been rumored that this was due to Thomas catching syphilis from a sex worker a few years prior. But I'm not so sure about that. That's the main story people tell. In 1888, Thomas was placed into the Lambeth Asylum because he was doing some weird shit, okay? He was hopping into his neighbor's yards. He was screaming that people were trying to poison him. Anyway, he's there for not four days before escaping. Most wanted list, where were you? This was much, much before. It was not until three years later in 1891 that he was caught and apprehended after stabbing two women in the butt. Florence Grace Johnson and Isabella Fraser Anderson. He was detained and examined by multiple doctors who diagnosed him as, quote, psychotic and dangerous. At court, Thomas ended up being sentenced to be held at Broadmoor indefinitely, kind of like the sentencing for the Silent Twins. According to the Jack the Ripper tour website, I know, but they were the only ones who had any information on his final years, he remained at Broadmoor until his death in 1903. During his time at Broadmoor, he was regularly described as aggressive and dangerous, although he would never admit to committing the crimes he was charged with or even make mention of the supposed Jack the Ripper crimes that it was suggested some journalist and police believed he may have carried out. In the May following his commitment to the hospital, attendants would make comment on his temper and threats to them and other inmates. But by the following March of 1892, they considered Thomas Cutbush to be generally dull and apathetic and that he appeared to be an imbecile. That's what the official notes said. By April of 1893, the notes regarding Thomas Cutbush stated that he was becoming more and more demented and would refuse visits from his relatives. He wasn't taking care of himself. He had become dirty and degraded in his habits. And although he briefly cleaned himself up, he finally gave up in March of 1898 and his health and appearance declined greatly. One of the last visits his mother and aunt made to him was on April 20th of 1903, where Thomas's mom came in and she tried to kiss him and he ended up biting her. A few months after this, his health rapidly declined due to chronic kidney disease, resulting in his death, and Thomas Cutbush died there in Broadmoor on July 5th of 1903. Now we have to talk about the Jack the Ripper stuff, obviously, that's why I wanted to include him in this. So he was first pinned as a suspect in the killings because of these articles that started to surface in the publication The Sun back in February of 1894 this was but it was basically all gossip because they released this big I mean all the big publications at the time wanted to be the ones to figure out who Jack the Ripper was this is like some 1800 clickbait right so they put out this article that's like we know who Jack the Ripper is it's this guy who's in an asylum but people have debunked this theory several times because The Sun's whole story about Thomas was that he got syphilis and then he went crazy and started killing women. But later on, a few years after this, people went through his intake records from after he was brought to Broadmoor and nothing was noted on the syphilis stuff. They checked medical records, everything. And so while it's not impossible, it's not likely and it totally pokes a hole in the son's theory that he went mad from syphilis because I don't think he ever had syphilis. I think they literally just found someone who was in an institution and were like, oh, it could have been this guy. I covered Jack the Ripper a few years ago on an episode. I still think it might have been Carl Feigenbaum, but this guy certainly fits the mold, at least timing and age-wise, but I don't know. I don't think it was him. Now we're going to move on to the Roaring Twenties. I want to talk about Ronald True. 
Ronald was born in Manchester in June of 1891 to a teen mom, 16-year-old Annabelle. He pretty much sucked from the get-go. Like, he was a very annoying child, always getting in trouble at school. He tortured animals, all of the very bad telltale signs of someone who's going to go on to do a lot of really bad things. Well, specific to animal torture. I think there's a lot of annoying kids who don't grow up to be like Ronald, thank God. I mean, his home life was rough. Annabelle was probably doing the best she could, but he was just hellacious. In 1902, when he was nine years old, Annabelle actually ended up marrying this wealthy baron named Arthur Reginald French. This was life-changing for them, because it gave Annabelle the ability to remove Ronald from his current school and place him into a prestigious grammar school. After graduating, Ronald joined the Royal Flying Corps, and it seemed like he had a good head on his shoulders. Like, all right, you know, maybe he's got it together now maybe he's turned into a fine young man however two bad plane accidents within two months of each other led to a nervous breakdown and just a few months post breakdown ronald ended up contracting syphilis he ended up back in england briefly but in 1918 he flees to new york where he gets a job as a flying instructor for the fucking united states war department even though he was very much not qualified this inevitably backfired when they were like hey we don't know what you guys are doing over there but over here we don't do things like that you fired. But it didn't matter because he was in New York just long enough to meet this gal named Frances Roberts. Frances was an actress. They get married that same year. They bounce around the U.S. a little because... Ronald's trying to like pick up jobs wherever he can and he's telling them this fantastical backstory like yeah I was the best pilot in the UK like you need me over here da 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 but he had no idea what he was doing. I think they went to Houston Texas for a while but then ended up back in England where his rich stepdad gets him a job at some mining company. So things are looking good okay we're starting to settle in a little bit here in England but Ronald ends up getting Francis pregnant and almost immediately after loses his job because hey what do you know when your rich stepdad buys you a job it doesn't equate to job experience his stepdad was pissed when Ronald got fired he's like you know what I'm fucking done with you I'm not supporting you guys anymore you're cut off but that's absolutely not how things actually happened because even though he said that Ronald was still given an allowance from his stepdad that was enough to support him Francis and their new child Ronald didn't even have to work if he didn't want to but it also wasn't the excess money that he was used to having when he did have a job and simultaneously was receiving his allowance so he finds another job but not before breakdown number two This happened in 1920. Richard was abusing morphine and shit started to get really dark, like really, really bad. So bad that his mom and Francis got together and they were like, you got to go to rehab. They end up sending him to this center for six months. That was like a rehabilitation center of sorts. And it definitely helped him get off the morphine, but... Ronald also started developing this intense paranoia that he had an evil doppelganger by the same name, Ronald True, except the last name was spelt differently. Ronald's last name was spelt True in the sense that we all know it, like true or false. But the evil doppelganger was like Ronald T-R-E-U or or T-R-E-W or something. And he believed that he had this evil doppelganger out there in the world who was trying to kill him. So after he's released the following year, he leaves 
Francis and their child. He's like, you know what? I'm done with you guys. I don't want to be a husband. I don't want to be a father. He goes so far as to remove them from his will. And he goes to London where he tells his family that he'd secured a lucrative job from this mystery businessman when in all actuality, Ronald was just out there in London committing some good old fashioned fraud, writing bad checks, fighting off his evil twin. And then in February of 1922, he ends up meeting 25-year-old Gertrude Yates. He's, I believe, 31 at this point, maybe 30 still. So they're pretty close in age. Gertrude was a high-end call girl, if you pick it up what I'm putting down. And she was told that Richard was a general in the army, which we know he was not. But they hung out. They go back to her place one night. They end up, you know doing what you do and then he leaves the next morning but not before stealing five pounds out of her purse i'm like richard and gertrude was pissed she's like i'm never doing that again and it's like well yeah that's kind of it's kind of the opposite of how that transaction's supposed to go down but alas she ends up agreeing to go out ronald a few weeks later well according to some sources others say that ronald had pestered her for the following couple of days from like march 2nd to march 5th and eventually she was like okay fine come in come in and so they do the whole thing he ends up staying the night and the next morning he wakes her up and he's like hey i'm making some tea do you want some tea and she's like yeah and so as soon as she starts to put her head up from the pillow ronald hits her with a rolling pin it knocks her out he proceeds to bludgeon her and then strangles her to death and steals any and all things of value and books it but just as he's walking out of gertrude's apartment her cleaning lady walks in and he's like oh uh you know don't wake her don't bother waking her we had a really wild night i'm gonna come back later and I'll, i'll wake her up then but this cleaning lady emily emily Steele was her name waits until ronald leaves and she's like um that's this feels fucking weird so she goes into gertrude's bedroom and is horrified to see gertrude is just bloodied and blue and so she calls the police the police show up and emily the housekeeper does the best she can to describe this ronald true guy but i don't think she knew his name at the time and so we're gonna fast forward a little here because we have a a lot more to talk about in this episode but i want to talk about how he got caught so the people who hung out at the club where ronald met gertrude knew that he used this one chauffeur all the time named luigi mazzola this information was presented to the police when they showed up at the club asking if anyone there knew a tall thin guy maybe around 30 31 years old the guy that the housekeeper had described to them. Meanwhile, Ronald is just having the time of his life. After he had left Gertrude's flat after killing her, he went straight to the suit shop to get a new fit. The store clerk was like, my friend, why are you covered in blood? And instead of saying something, you know, normal, Ronald's like, ah, yes, well, I was actually just in a plane accident when I was coming in from France this morning, so I need to get a new suit. The guy's like, okay, uh, (laughs) we know this because the police later went and talked to this guy. Later that afternoon, Luigi, the driver, picks Ronald up from the store, takes him home, and then returns later to drop Ronald off at a concert of sorts, goes back to his garage while Ronald's at the concert, and there he finds two cops waiting for him. They ask the driver about his whereabouts. They were like, hey, we heard you drive this Ronald True guy around. And the driver, 
ends up leading the cops to Ronald. So four officers that night show up to the music hall. They find Ronald sitting there. He's in like a box seat. Imagine the scene. They place him under arrest and he admits that he had been there. He's like, yeah, you know, I've seen Gertrude before. I've been to her place, but I didn't commit a moita. Two days later, he ends up formally being charged with the murder because they're like, yeah, you absolutely fucking did. He was held on remand at a Brixton prison to await trial. And while there, he was placed under the observation of two medical officers who, noting his excitable personality and insomnia, ended up prescribing Ronald's sedatives to calm him down. According to the Finborough website, his subsequent trial took place at Old Bailey and it lasted for five days where Ronald ended up being sentenced to death. And this was huge in the news at the time because they had just done a trial for an 18-year-old kid named Henry Jacoby, I think like a day or two before, who had been sentenced to death for the murder of one of the hotel guests, a 65-year-old woman named Lady White. Whilst finding Jacoby guilty, the jury made a strong recommendation for mercy, and the day before his sentence was due to be carried out, a petition for his reprieve, signed by several hundred people, including two members of the jury that convicted him, was handed to the home office. But the judge was like, no, he needs to be executed, and so this 18-year-old kid ended up being executed for the murder. And then the next day... The court declared that Ronald True was not guilty by reason of insanity and committed him to the Broadmoor Hospital for the criminally insane. Now, this caused a lot of drama because they were like, okay, the 18-year-old kid, Henry Jacoby, they were like, yeah, he also murdered somebody, but why was he executed and Ronald's allowed to just go be committed to this hospital? Like, there was this huge public outcry at the time because everyone was like, this is super fucked up. You're only letting Ronald off the hook because of his wealth and because he's connected to these powerful people. This scandal led to the parliamentary committee to examine the laws relating to insanity at the time, but nothing really changed because of this. Ronald True ended up staying in Broadmoor until his death at the age of 60 in 1951. Apparently, throughout his time there, he played a major role in organizing entertainment for the inmates. Also around this time, shortly before Ronald's death, the Criminal Justice Act of 1948 was passed, which led to a lot of changes, specifically at Broadmoor. Basically, the act stated that asylums and places that were appointed under Section 1 of the Criminal Lunatic Asylums Act 1860 shall be called and are in this act referred to as Broadmoor institutions, and accordingly, for references to criminal lunatic asylums by whatever name called, in any enactment there shall be substituted references to Broadmoor institutions. The expressions criminal lunatic shall cease to be used, and it shall now be substituted for Broadmoor patient. All Broadmoor institutions shall be placed under the management of the Board of Control, and every such institution appointed before the commencement of this act shall by virtue of this act and without further assurance best in the Minister of Health. And basically, this was great. I mean, well, not great, but it was an improvement for the time because they were saying, hey, we can't call people lunatics anymore. These are now Broadmoor institutions, and we're not going to 
call these people by their disabilities or by their diseases, we're going to refer to them simply as Broadmoor patients or patients of Broadmoor when deemed necessary. It also required that institutions were now going to be looked over by the Board of Control and give people the ability to come in and monitor what's happening at these hospitals. And basically, it just put a lot of different rules into effect that they had to follow, and it added a lot of regulations to protect not only the patients, but the hospital employees and the families of the patients, as well as victims of any of the patients who had been convicted of violent crimes. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Bing! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have a crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. <laughs> Judy Justice. Only on Freebie. Along with all of the aforementioned changes, security was also really heightened at Broadmoor after the 1952 escape of a patient named John Straffen. Here we have another story of a troubled youth who went on to wreak absolute havoc. Little background on John, his father was in the army, so they moved around a lot when he was a kid, but by the time John was six years old, they were living in Somerset, and John had a really hard time adjusting to school there. He just didn't get along with the other kids, and he was also super aggressive. Two years after the move, when he's around eight years old, John found himself in legal trouble for the first time. Because he was constantly ditching school and also shoplifting from the local markets, people started to take note and make complaints. So John ends up getting in trouble at, again, just eight years old for stealing as well as truancy. They forced him to meet with a child psychologist who concluded that his mental capacity was that of a much younger kid. As a result, they ended up sending John to the St. Joseph School, which at the time advertised advertised itself as a school for, quote, mentally defective children. John remained here for a few years and was later transferred to another similar school where he was just a little shithead, a real killer in the making. He would strangle chickens and geese to get attention from the other kids at school, also allegedly to get a reaction from girls. Like, buddy, that's not it. That's not the way. There's a lot of ways to flirt. There's a lot of ways to not flirt. You're, you're going with the latter. Yeah, it's safe to say John did not have a way with with the girls at school. In fact, on one occasion, a 13-year-old girl actually went to the police because John told her that he'd killed before, and he was like, hey, 
What would you do if I killed you? Shortly afterwards, John was arrested after going to the house of another girl that he had his eye on and strangling five of her chickens. Like, what the fuck is wrong with this kid? He was sent to a facility called the Hortham Colony instead of jail because of his mental deficiencies, which he actually ended up doing pretty well here. And it seemed like he was making a lot of progress. He was doing so well that the professionals there ended up releasing him to a lower security facility. And at that facility, he had certain privileges where he could like leave during the day and go to the store if he wanted to. But he ended up shoplifting from one of these stores and he ended up getting sent back to Hortham. He remained in and out of facilities over the next couple of years, but in 1951, he was finally released into the world at the age of 21, which would prove to be a fatal mistake. Somebody like John could not be rehabilitated. July 15th, 1951, he's headed to the movie theater one afternoon, and he spots a five-year-old girl named Brenda Goddard collecting flowers outside of her house, and he essentially goes up to her, tells her, hey, I know a spot where there's even more flowers, and so this little girl goes with him because she doesn't know any better, and this piece of shit is like helping her over a fence, but then he just drops her on the other side, she hits her head, he proceeds to hit her head again with a rock, strangles her, and then just leaves her body there for anybody to find. Proceeds to get up, clean himself off, continues on to the movie theater like nothing happened, where he ironically went to see this film called Shockproof, which is about a parole officer who falls in love with an inmate who ends up shooting a man that she previously loved and had gone to prison to protect. I don't know, the whole story. But it's about a moita, or attempted moita, anyways. Just a few weeks later, on August 8th, John is headed to the movie theater again when he runs into a nine-year-old named Cicely Batstone. He's like, hey, I, I have another really cool movie that's playing right now you want to go see it and so he takes this nine-year-old girl to a different movie theater and then afterwards takes her on a bus out to this meadow on the outskirts of town where he again proceeded to strangle her to death just as he had with brenda but this time he had made a huge mistake if you're trying to get away with a crime, because not only did he take her to two different movie theaters, well, he met her at the first one, he took her to a second one, he took a bus ride with her, he wasn't in any sort of disguise, and so people had seen John Straffen walking with this nine-year-old girl, and when she went missing, they ran police with this information. The police ended up going to John's house and arresting him the following morning, and he admitted to not only killing Cicely, but five-year-old Brenda as well a few weeks prior. After a two-day hearing, three weeks after he was arrested, he was deemed criminally insane by the court, and he was transferred from the prison that he was at leading up to the trial over to Broadmoor. According to Berkshire Live, at Broadmoor, John Straffen got a job as a cleaner at the hospital. And again, it seemed like, huh... Maybe he's calming down a bit. Maybe this will help him get on the right track. And, you know, he's probably not going to be out in society again. But maybe he can make an okay life for himself within the walls of Broadmoor. But on April 29th of 1952... John was outside cleaning some buildings, which just so happened to be near the exterior wall of the yard. He's able to jump the wall 
And he had been collecting clothes for a couple of days, like civilian clothes that he was wearing underneath his Broadmoor uniform. And so he books it over this wall, tears off his Broadmoor uniform, and he's able to travel seven miles during his escape, which apparently only lasted for a few hours before he was caught again. In those few hours that he was out of the facility, John had murdered again. So he was brought back, like I said, later that afternoon. But the next morning, police found the body of a five-year-old girl named Linda Boyer. He ended up going to trial for that and was sentenced to death on September 4th. Just a month after receiving his sentence, it was transferred to life in prison on the grounds of insanity. He moved from prison to mental institution to another prison to another prison over the years and ended up dying at Franklin Prison in County Durham on November 19th of 2007. He was 77 years old when he died and he had been in prison for 55 years. One of the longest prisoners in British history. Even younger, at just 14 years old, there was a boy named Graham Young who was amongst the youngest ever inmates to enter the doors of Broadmoor. Now, Graham is actually who I was looking into when I started this episode. And then, well, you know how it goes. I just got so wrapped up in Broadmoor as a whole. But Graham was born in Neasden, North London on September 7th of 1947. His parents, Fred and Bessie, already had a girl and they were thrilled upon learning Bessie was pregnant again. But their joy was short-lived. Bessie developed pleurisy during pregnancy, which is inflammation of the pleuri, which impairs the lubricating function and causes pain when breathing. It's usually caused by pneumonia and other diseases of the chest or abdomen. And as a result, she died just three months after Graham was born. The dad, Fred, just was absolutely destroyed by this. He couldn't do parenthood on his own. So he sends his daughter to live with her grandparents and then sends Graham to live with his aunt, Winnie. Graham spent the first two years of his life with his Aunt Winnie and his uncle until 1950 when his dad got remarried to a woman named Molly and was like, okay, I think I'm ready to do this whole parenthood thing again. Graham's aunt was the only mother he had known and he was less than enthused even at that young age to be separated from her. He was not doing well back at home with his dad. I think that would fuck a lot of people up psychologically. As Graham got older, he really preferred to spend his days alone in isolation where he got super into learning about chemistry, like hyper fixated specifically on toxicology, which would end up becoming what he was known for. He'd read all these thrillers and informational books on people like Dr. Crippen, who was a f- infamous poisoner, and he became really obsessed with the different ways that different poisons affected your body. That's red flag number one. Red flag number two is that as he got a little older, he started to build up this really unhealthy obsession with Hitler. Well, I mean, any obsession with Hitler is unhealthy, but you know what I mean. He wore swastikas. He would go around telling anybody who would listen to him, what a miss understood man Hitler was. So it's not not looking great. Okay. According to biography, academically, Graham's only interests were chemistry. Like he was so good in science class and learning anything pertaining to toxicology, but failed at whatever didn't hold his interest. His dad wasn't super concerned because he's like, well, maybe he'll grow up and be a chemist. So he really started encouraging Graham to pursue chemistry. He bought him like a youth chemistry set and all day Graham would just be in his room being a little mad scientist. 
He starts hanging around the local labs with other chemists as well as the laboratory supply shops. And he has all of them convinced that he is studying in college, that he is 17 years old. And he has this whole story he's spinning to them. And they believe him because of how well-spoken he was when it came to the topic of toxicology. And so he gets these lab supply shops to start selling him poison, like arsenic, That he says he needs to use during labs. But as soon as he got his hands on this stuff, shit went south. Graham starts slowly but surely poisoning everybody around him, from his pupils at school to his own family. In 1961, Graham's stepmom, Molly, started developing really bad stomach cramps, and eventually so did his dad, and then his sister. And his dad actually confronts Graham and is like, hey, I don't know what you're doing with that chemistry set in there, but I think it's like leaking some sort of toxic gas or something into the house. Like, maybe that's why we're getting sick. But then it wasn't just at home. A classmate of Graham's named Christopher Williams started developing similar symptoms. Things really took a turn when Graham's sister became super sick one day while she was on her way to work. She ends up going to the hospital where doctors discovered belladonna in her system, which is the ancient extract of deadly nightshade. And they were like, uh, how did that happen? Well, a year after she had gotten sick the first time, Molly, his stepmom, on April 21st of 1962, ends up getting rushed to the hospital in excruciating pain and later dying. It turns out that Graham had been poisoning his stepmom's tea with antimony for almost an entire year, so much so that she had ended up building a tolerance to the poison, and it was no longer making her sick. So he switches to tallium, and that's what ended up killing her. But his stepmom was cremated immediately after she died, so nobody knew that Graham had been poisoning her. But others were suspicious. Graham's aunt, the one that he had lived with until he was two, was still very much playing a role in his life, And she was concerned that everyone around him was getting sick and that it was due to whatever Graham was doing with his little chemistry sets. So she ends up sending Graham to a psychiatrist and that psychiatrist recommended calling the police. Graham was arrested on May 23rd of 1962 at 14 years old. After being arrested, Graham admitted to police that he had poisoned his father, sister, as well as his school friend, but no murder charges were brought against him for the murder of his stepmother because, well, like I said, she was cremated, so there was no way to verify that. At 14 years old, he was committed to Broadmoor Maximum Security Hospital, where he was one of the youngest inmates in its history. Again, according to biography, incarceration barely dampened his enthusiasm for experimentation, and within weeks of arriving at Broadmoor, a fellow patient, John Barrage, died by cyanide poisoning. Graham claimed that he had extracted cyanide from laurel bush leaves outside, but they didn't take him seriously, and John Barrage's death was recorded as a suicide. On other occasions, staff members and fellow patients' drinks were found to have been tampered with, and several people found themselves sick in Graham's presence. By the late 1960s, Graham's doctors seemed oblivious to all of his years of torturing his fellow patients and staff members that in June of 1970, he was released because he was deemed cured. As he's getting ready to leave the hospital, he turns to a psychiatric nurse and tells her, I'm going to kill one person for every year that I've been here. And they took note of this, 
put it on his file, but they still decided to go ahead with releasing him. So he ends up just fucking walking out of there at the age of 23. This was in February of 1971, where he proceeded to land himself a job at John Hadlin Laboratories, where Graham happily offered to make coffee and tea for his co-workers. Soon enough, right around the time Graham started working there, his colleagues started to get really sick. Everyone in the lab was coming down with this mystery bug. It wasn't until one of the employees, Bob Agle, died from poisoning that suspicion began to arise yet again. According to All That's Interesting, Bob Agle had gotten better once he was home, only to get sick again when he returned to work. He then became completely debilitated before dying on July 7th of 1971. And then a second death, that of 60-year-old Fred Biggs, occurred soon after. By this point, 70 employees at the lab had experienced similar symptoms to the two men who died. So then they were like, what is going on here? Well, Graham ended up being the one to fuck himself over. He went to the staff doctor and asked him why thallium poisoning wasn't being considered in the death of Bob Eagle or Fred Biggs because it was often used on site at the lab. Surprised and concerned... By Graham's knowledge of toxicology, the doctor at the lab ends up reporting the exchange to management who then alerted the police. An investigative team found Graham Young's diary at his house with scientific detachment, the experiments of how he poisoned his co-workers. They also found thallium in his pockets. Graham was taken to prison, and at his trial, he was sentenced to serve life in prison in June of 1972. In 1990, he was found dead in his cell at the age of 39, with the official cause of death recorded as a heart attack. But a lot of people believe to this day that he was simply tired of life in prison, so he ended up making himself the final victim of his poisoning. A few years after Graham Young did his time at Broadmoor, two very infamous criminals, Charles Bronson as well as Peter Sutcliffe, did time at Broadmoor. Charles was committed to Broadmoor twice within a period of four years from 1978 to 1982, but I'm saving that story for a full episode because I've read books on him. I want to cover that story in its entirety. And then Peter Sutcliffe, he is also known as the Yorkshire Ripper, was also at Broadmoor for a staggering 32 years from 1984 until 2016 when he was deemed fit to be sent back to prison, where he remained until his death in in 2020, but I feel like both of those cases have been talked about quite a bit. I wanted to focus perhaps on some of the lesser known stories in this episode. Broadmoor remains open to this day. However, as of 2007, it only houses male patients, and many believe that the doors to Broadmoor should have closed a long time ago. From financial extortion to allegations of abuse, the Broadmoor is no stranger to controversy in recent years as well, but I'll leave that for you all to investigate. I wanted to really focus this episode on on just sharing the stories of some of the most notorious patients of Broadmoor, and we've done just that, but who knows? There may be a time when we come back to revisit, but for now, I'm going to escape, so I will see you next time, and until next time, be happy even if your life's a bore, because you could end up somewhere like Broadmoor. All right, goodbye.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Cult Leader early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin' Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin' Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, But after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.